Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, it's episode uh, 181. Today is September 17th, 2020, and this is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Yes, live across the internet. Here there we go. There he is. Hey, how are you, Blake? Can't complain, man. It's another wonderful Thursday evening. How are you? It is another wonderful Thursday evening. I'm good. Um, we got a we got an interesting story to talk about. We're digging back into the science roots here. We're uh, talking about uh, reprogramming brain cells, enabling f- flexible decision making. Um, and uh, that'll be that'll be interesting to deep dive into. Uh, we're getting kind of the back to like I said, those science roots. Um, we got some programming notes here. This is going to be a normal episode. Uh, next week, we're going to have a special HFES preview for all of you. Um, and then we're going to take a quick break on the week of, I, I guess, the episode airs on the 1st of October. Uh, but then we'll be back uh, with a couple episodes for you during the HFES week. Um, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to try to get as much coverage as we can. Maybe we'll get some interviews out. We're still kind of working out our schedule to see what coverage we can. Um, but everyone knows this weird is weird. This year is weird with the virtual aspect of it and everything. We'll, we'll get more into like what we can look forward to next week. Um, and again, we'll just kind of, uh, we'll see what we can do. We, we, we will have at least, uh, an episode covering the conference for you, maybe two, um, maybe some interviews. We'll see where it goes. Uh, but, but, uh, we will at least have something for you. Um, uh, but Blake, what's going on in your world, man? Man, not a whole lot. I'm definitely I'm feeling older this week, so it's uh it's a struggle for sure. Uh, you are but, feeling older this week. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but not everything's pretty good. I mean, I really can't complain. I've decided to kind of return to streaming stuff on on Twitch, but I've taken kind of a different route than normal. I've actually been doing a little bit of web development work on Twitch. Uh, so if anybody's interested in any of that, I'm actually streaming how to build a portfolio a couple nights a week um, at Don't Panic UX. But yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun because like uh, I do a lot of prototyping at work, and now I get to use some of the more modern technology that's available on the web, and it's it's kind of fun to be able to troubleshoot a lot of stuff on the fly and probably have a lot of people laugh at me or whatever because some of the stuff I do is ridiculous or mistakes that I make. Hey, that's that's awesome. So so to be clear, you're not you're not streaming games. You're streaming like actual practical things here, like how to do like uh, not tutorials, but like your process for how to build something with code. Yeah, yeah. So like, there's a there's a paradigm, or I guess it's like a system architecture that's really popular called the Jamstack, and I didn't really know anything about it. So it, but it's really popular for building basically static websites that are that can be dynamically rendered so it kind of makes performance of like a portfolio really good and quick and it uses modern technology that i'm interested in like you know react which is just a javascript library um and so i've I've been reading a book basically on how to do this stuff and so i just started like streaming through it and it's it is not a tutorial it is all the mistakes (laughs) that i made throughout it and learning process for sure i think that's great and i this is this might sound weird coming from me because I'm your friend, but I might like tune into a couple of those because I, I really do enjoy watching people like discover a process that works for them. And you said it yourself. It might not be perfect. It might not be. It's not a tutorial, but it's your way of doing things. And I like 
and I've talked about it on the show, I like watching people trying to figure things out and trying different techniques that I may not have thought of myself. Uh, so I might, I might tune into that. That's awesome, Blake. Absolutely, man. Yeah, it's it's been really cool because like I have more of a, I obviously have a human factors background, but I've like taught myself how to be a UX designer, and so a lot of the tools that exist out there have some like pre-built in code generators, basically. So when you, it makes it easier to hand it off to to a developer. But I always thought like, is it really that great? Are these like CSS? Is the basic CSS it spits out any good? Is it helpful? Um, and it's kind of funny. So I've made most of my portfolio in Figma. And I have been basically just stealing the, some of the CSS, tweaking it to my needs because I have like I want to build something that's responsive, right? Um, but it's been pretty amazing to be able to use a design-specific tool to really integrate into development really, really well. Now, the the tricky part, of course, comes when you're doing like interactions, but like still having the prototype put together in Figma, like for the stuff that I want to do, gives me a sense of okay, I need to make event listeners for these buttons, and here's the things I want them to do. Um, so yeah, it's just it's just a way to have fun and to like make myself you know, listen to music, code, just enjoy the process. So it's a, it's a fun time. That's cool, man. And where can our listeners find you if they want to, if they, if they want to watch you code, uh, poorly or greatly? I don't. <laughs> so yeah, definitely leaning towards the poorly right now, but yeah, it's uh so for Twitch, it's the same thing anywhere on social media. It's at don't panic UX and you should be able to find me. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of what I've been up to this week. Uh, besides, and this has been a guilty pleasure on top of, you know, streaming code, I've been playing Riot's first-person shooter all week called, I'm going to say it wrong, Valorant. And it, it, Nick, it is so much fun, but the thing that blew my mind was how quick and easy the onboarding process was and just how much fun you can actually have playing with a keyboard and mouse because that's never something I've done. I've huh. never really been a big fan of that. That's awesome. Uh, what made the uh, onboarding process memorable for you? Well, so one of my students, they wrote about kind of the overall game experience. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go check this out before I talk to him later later that evening. And the onboarding experience was just really quick. And it had a lot of like fun kind of animations along with it. And it made the waiting time less boring. And it did a good job of like keeping you in the loop of what's going on throughout the process, the different phases that it's putting into the game. But it also prepped you for with almost like semi tutorial content of like characters in the game and stuff like that. So it was uh, it was just like a kind of a cool and quick experience that Riot obviously had taken the thought and time to design for something that really only lasted, you know, 10 minutes. It's not the main experience. Um, and cause I've never actually played a riot game, but I've always heard really great things about their design team and the work they put into the user experience of their games and systems and all that stuff. Um, and it was very apparent just from even the onboarding. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad you had a positive experience. Um, I had a, speaking of games, I had a not so positive experience. I'm pretty sure you had the same experience here too. And we can uh -oh. talk about it. So, uh, Yesterday, PlayStation came out with their whole, uh, like, here's our launch lineup of all our games, some surprises in there. Uh, Lots very of surprises. Very exciting, right? Like, super excited. I'm like, and I was, like, team PlayStation for a while, um, and I'm actually... I'm actually team cloud gaming, but whatever. The 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 physical box in my house will be a PlayStation 5. Uh, and so I was very excited. I was ready to go. Um, a couple months back, you know, PlayStation had done a similar kind of little thing that said, 
don't worry, we'll let you know when pre-orders are going live. We'll give you plenty of heads up. Um, you know, and and in fact, here's you can you know uh, sign up for an alert to let you know we're gonna basically email you a link and you can pre-order it right there uh, for you know for as as long as supplies last. And I was like, oh, this oh, is great. Oh, I didn't great. even realize that. That's why this is great. I didn't even. I don't. Have, I don't even have to do anything. Uh, and so. You know, they had yesterday's showcase, and they kind of announced shortly that pre-orders would go live and uh, soon, but they didn't specify when. And then I think, you know, I wasn't paying close enough attention, but then they actually said within the next 24 hours, it'll go live. Uh, I got no email about it. Um, oh, no. And so uh, wake up this morning well-rested, and, and I think a lot of people are in this same boat who wanted this console is that uh, the pre-orders are sold out everywhere. Like there's nothing left. Um, yeah, and it, there's like across any possible retailer, there's nothing, nothing. And you know they they knew that the demand would be high. Uh, who knows if this is like a hype scheme or not? But I just it it felt like such a shitty experience for like uh you know a, a customer. And and I thought you know th- this is not a good way to have goodwill and with your fan base or your customer base or whatever. Um, it's not a good way to go about it. And, and hopefully they do like some make good with it where, um, you know, the, it's not like they can produce more. Right. And, and the world right now is weird because of everything. And uh, if there's delays, there's delays, but there's gotta be something they can do. Like, like, let's say if you signed up for that email to to figure out when things are going pre-order, maybe, maybe they send you a free game code or something. So that way you have something to play on day one when you actually get your box. Um, and so, I, I don't know, man. Like, it just feels like such a such a burn. Um, the whole thing was really weird, wasn't it? I mean, because it was it wasn't really clear when they were going to do pre ordering, and then to drop it like, oh, it's going to be within twenty four hours. And then I kind of did the same thing you did. I just well, you know was drinking coffee and decided to try and pre order if I could. Uh, but like, it yeah. wasn't even clear on any of the vendor sites that not only was it like sold out, but that that it wasn't available or, or had even been made open for pre-order right so it was it was really strange and the worst i think the worst part or or the worst part of all of this really is that like i said a couple weeks ago the head of marketing of the head of sony marketing went on with jeff Keighley, who's known in the video game world he does like vg uh video game awards he does uh opening night live for gamescom he does a lot right and he's well known in the community and he said in this interview with him hey don't worry we'll give you plenty of heads up it's not like you have to you know jump at Stay up uh, all moment's night. notice, yeah. And so I think that's the worst part, is that head of marketing said that. So I'm like, really? Come on. Uh, but I, I, will, I will say something positive. Um, so that's, that's kind of a negative experience. Something positive, which is kind of different, but video game related, but it's still this, this human factors piece of it, right? Uh, so that was customer experience, which we did a fantastic human factors minute on. You should go listen. Um, but... Uh, the, the more um, positive experience I had was, so uh, Destiny 2 is a video game where you fight aliens and do things. And it's like an MMO. And they have this thing every year called Moments of Triumph where you basically do certain things in the game to complete these uh, markers or achievements that are within the game. And if you complete uh, so many of them, you get um, the option to sort of solidify that experience um, 
with a physical manifestation of your virtual accomplishments. So what I'm talking about here is if you do enough of these challenges in the game, you can actually buy a t-shirt that says you did this stuff. And only only people who do this stuff can buy the t-shirt. Uh, otherwise, oh, it's what? like... Otherwise, it's like $777,000 to buy it normally, but then you get a discount code if you actually complete these challenges. So, um, and it only works once, right? So you can't like order two of them and give it to somebody. So that's really cool. And I thought this was a a really positive thing where like I felt proud of the stuff that I did in in the game and there's a time limit, right? Like it runs out, I think, at the end of this week uh, or or maybe next week. It's, It's one of those two, but, you know, I was able to complete Everything I needed to get this T-shirt in the amount of time—I don't have it yet—but it, it'll be it'll be pretty cool to have that like as a reminder, right? And I did a lot of this with a friend of mine too. Um, so you know, whenever I wear that shirt or have, you know, it it will be more than just a shirt. It will be a shirt with memories that I had with a friend of mine who we've been playing in a virtual space while quarantine is happening, and you know, we put a lot of effort into some of this stuff. So I, I thought it was very a, a cool thing to have that physical manifestation of digital exploits, if you will. That's pretty sick. Yeah. I, that I remember you had told me about that off podcast before, and it, it, I'm actually taking a look at it, the ones they have for for this year, I guess. Uh, but it's pretty cool. That's an awesome thing that Bungie has kind of done. And it's, it's fun that you were able to like kind of share the experience together with somebody else. So that's even makes it even more memorable. Yeah. So every, every time I look at that shirt now, it'll be, uh, yeah, I did that. I did that. I earned this, and it's, I don't know, it, it's a—it's uh, more than just a t-shirt, I guess. Uh, all right, uh, well, I think we should probably jump into the news, right? Let's do it. All right, this is the part of the show all about Human Factors news. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors. As long as it relates to the field, it is fair game for us to talk about. Blake, what do we got up first this week? All right, up first this week. So humans, like other animals, have the ability to constantly adapt to new situations. And researchers at the Brain Institute of the University of Zurich have utilized a mouse model to reveal which neurons in the brain are in command in guiding adaptive behavior. Their new study contributes to our understanding of the decision-making process in both healthy and unhealthy people. From greetings without handshakes to mandatory masks and trains to sneezing and elbow crooks, uh, the twenty the COVID-19 pandemic dramatically illustrates how important it can be for humans to unlearn habitual behaviors and learn new ones. And their study, just published in the scientific journal Nature, demonstrates that the orbital frontal cortex, a region of the cerebral cortex that sits behind the eyes, is capable of reprogramming neurons located in sensory areas. The researchers believe that the fundamental process they have observed in mice takes place in a similar way in the human brain as well, stating that their research findings may contribute to a better understanding of brain disorders in which the flexibility in decision making is impaired. Now Nick, that's that's got a lot going on. So There's we got some here. science. We got a little bit of, you know, today in our real world dealing with the pandemic and the the normalcy that we don't have and have to unlearn, but also like a, a bright future of understanding brain disorders. So this is pretty incredible from one paper. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. And, and uh, you know, we are kind of getting back to the science roots here with this one today. There's This is like a neuroscience uh, fun um 
package of of everything going on in the world right now, and I thought it was going to be fun to talk about. So again, nature. So that's we're good to go there. But the um, so I, I want to talk about methodology here uh, really quick because that was the big question to me. Is like okay, these are these are some pretty big claims. How how do they do this right? So so basically, what they did was they simulated a, a relearning process under controlled conditions and investigated what happens in the brain at the level of individual neurons during that process, right? And so they they trained animals to lick every time they touched a strip of coarse grit sandpaper with their whiskers and rewarded the response with a drink of uh, sugar water. Um, and then they the mice were not allowed to lick when they brushed their whiskers against that sandpaper. And if they did, they were punished with a mild, irritating noise. Um, and so once they understood how to perform that task, the tables, they, they basically flipped the table, flipped the script, and then the reward was delivered whenever they actually, um, you know, went against fine grain sandpaper and not coarse grit. Uh, so they basically, the, the mice are able to learn this new opposite behavior after just a little practice. So, so they believe that this study can be replicated in humans. Um, and and this is kind of a seminal piece on on how that decision making behavior can uh, be altered by um, reprogramming these brain cells, if you will. Absolutely, yeah. So that like that is really, I think, probably the seminal process they use in animal models for like showing adaptive learning. Uh, so that makes a whole lot of sense to me as somebody who spends a lot of time in an animal learning lab. But the 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 one thing that I'm I don't really understand, and I, I would imagine I know how this is kind of pushed, but not really clear from the article at least, is how they're kind of making the connections between the orbital frontal cortex um, and what they're seeing in mice in terms of like how it's re- reprogramming neurons. Because I, I get the adaptive learning aspect of it, of like teaching something, right. teaching an animal one thing and then being able to reverse that. But they're actually like tying it specifically to like neuron reprogramming. Um, and that's that's what I was more interested to hear from when you were giving the methods talk. And it doesn't yeah. sound like they really are clear about that. That's this next paragraph here. So I can, I can get into it a little bit. Uh, so, so they basically, um, I'll, I'll try to shorten some of this here. I'm like skimming. But the idea is that they, they took these uh, – I got some background noise here. They, got, they took some biological and imaging techniques um, to look at these individual neurons within the brain itself. Um, and they found that this group of brain cells uh, within that orbitofrontal cortex is, is active during that relearning process. Um, so basically what's happening is that uh, these, these axons um, – the, these cells, these axons within these cells have have kind of these long. Uh, they they extend into the uh, sensory area where they process that tactile stimulus, um, and so uh, then they're basically um, they they followed that old activity pattern, but then w- when that new situation came in, they adapted to that new situation, and then uh, the the cells. The neurons within that orbitofrontal cortex uh, were deliberately inactivated and relearning um, basically impaired. Relearning was impaired as, as the neurons in the sensory area um, basically didn't exhibit that modification in their activity. Uh, that's Got a lot. It. It's, it's yeah, a lot to unpack. So what, <laughs> yeah. So what it really sounds like is it's it 
what they're i feel like what's trying to be explained is like over time that gets a lot better like your neurons are able to fire and understand the new activity that you're trying to you know get the orbital frontal cortex to actually participate in but in the meantime while you're having to go through that process of well you just taught me this new thing about like here's how i get a reward and now you're doing something different and i'm unsure of what to do so it's interesting because they go on a little bit further down talking about kind of basically the plasticity there is all right. dependent on that higher order orbital frontal cortex being a part of the pro- process. And so that's what they're saying is because you've got these specific neurons that are or are or are not firing depending on the phase of learning that they're in, like that's going to determine how behaviorally flexible you're able to be in a new situation. So that's, that's kind of incredible. Yeah. Uh, and sounds like just amazing animal model learning but I, I i still think that i'm in the same boat you were when we started it's a it's a lot to make that jump from an animal model even a even a mouse model to yeah. a human brain in some ways i think uh i think this is that thing that we always kind of harp on papers for is what's the application right and i think what they're trying to get at is that thing that we're requesting but it's not it's too big of a jump for the thing that we're requesting um so, so the discovery here, really, or, or I guess the sort of finding within this paper here, is that these circuits um, of, of neurons that were um, basically doing this reprogramming, those were unknown until now. Uh, and understanding that those have an effect on the relearning process is going to help us uh, when it comes to things like, um, you know, being able to... Uh, treat some of these brain disorders where decision-making is impaired, right? So I get the connection. Um, I get the excitement behind it. Uh, it will be interesting to see when this is tested in humans, whether or not that same finding occurs. Um, but I, I mean, feel like it will. I, w- I don't know. It's uh, I don't know. I think it, I think there's a good chance. Yeah. That it would I mean, be very, very close. These are not people just flippantly making guesses. That, yeah. It might be true in humans. They have reason to believe that. So, um, you know, and I always, I always get really nervous when we talk about neuroscience on the show, because as you can tell, as I was trying to read that paragraph in a way that made sense to me, probably did not make sense to a lot of people. Um, I was struggling to to make the connections in my mind of how this is working, even though I read this previously. It's like, you know, you get to read this multiple times to really understand how it's happening. And thankfully, Science Daily actually goes through and tries to write this in layman's terms for you, uh, these complex papers. And and I love that. I I love them for that. So um, I think, you know, for me, I'm really excited to see where this goes uh, this is a great first step in in a in a long process where we can um, hopefully understand how the brain is working even better. Yeah, and I'm thinking it, j- just to throw this out there, like I, I spent a lot of time focusing on neuroscience as an undergrad, and uh, even even most papers I still pick up today, I have a hard time, you know, getting my brain back in that space. But I think you did, did a great job of explaining the crux of what's going on here. But there, there is one extra point in here that I, I think personally, and again, anybody that's listening, we'd love to hear from you either in Slack, by email, on social media, 
if you have any better clarifications here, but I, I, I do think the biggest connection they're making besides like now understanding, they think there are two portions of the brain that are really focused in this flexibility of decision-making is also the fact that they're so um, from like a distance perspective, very separated. Cause they even talk kind of here towards the end of one of these paragraphs, like the mode of communication and cr control across these very distant areas is pretty remarkable. Now, the, the connection later in this last paragraph of how are we dealing or how do we better understand, you know, problems in the brain, like when we're talking about schizophrenia, well, I would imagine that that distance of communication could play into that in some ways because we're talking about adaptive behaviors that are like not always seen in people with different types of brain disorders. So you have a lot more, you have a lot of space for that neuronal information to have to travel across these two very different types of sensory information in your brain. And I'm wondering if that's really where this complex process of decision-making gets lost in translation between two different places. If there are, if you studied, you know, brains from people who have passed on and donated their brains to science that maybe had mental disorders or brain disorders where we see like breaks in a lot of the communication lines maybe between specific neurons and this orbital frontal cortex right um, and just to provide a little bit more context because i i didn't know this before we actually started reading this article um I looked it up shortly before, and I was speaking as if I understood. But my, my understanding of the, uh, the section of the brain, this orbital frontal cortex, is that this is what is involved with decision-making. And so that's why it's so significant here is because you have uh, this activity um, that's happening in this uh, section of your brain that could be um, you know, tied to a different part of your brain, I, I guess— like the 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 learned behavior might be stored elsewhere uh within this orbital cortex orbital frontal cortex but then the act of unlearning and relearning is in a different part of that right is that is that what i'm understanding um yeah yeah nail so, on the head so uh well that's probably not a good an analogy for this Blake uh we don't want to put any nails in the head with uh decision making so um that joke did not land. I am no. listening to people yelling in their cars like that was dumb. Uh, and and anyway, the point is that they're happening in two different places, but within the same section, right? That's what it seems like yeah. from how they're describing it. Now, I want to say that it's get, there's even more distance between that. Like you may be trying to pull some kind of fine grain detail you learned in a in a previous instance, whether it's a situation or something you've just like learned a behavior from, and then you're trying to process it on top of that in your orbital frontal cortex and then pass it to the frontal lobe. But I'm not completely sure what their kind of hypothesis from here is, but that it, that's what you just described of like that complexity of transporting it even within the orbital frontal cortex is really, I think what they're driving at for relearning. Yeah. So how does this relate to human factors? So if, if, you know, decision-making is huge in human factors. And if we understand this better, we can understand exactly what type of, um, uh, like we have the behavioral, uh, treatments. We also have, um, these, uh, these individuals who are, um, who have brain disorders who can't make these decisions, uh, because it's impaired in some way, shape or form. Um, so we can, if we understand exactly how this reprogramming is working, we can help design interfaces around them. We can help design systems, that help account for the way that our brains reprogram this information and optimize it now that we have this understanding, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I obviously the has, this has giant implications in the neuroscience field, but also I think just in the medical field in general. One thing they call out in the article that I think is could be an interesting application for the from the human factors perspective of like designing of technology is people with autism because ultimately what this kind of paper or really a lot of neuroscience papers is getting at is what can we get like one half of a step forward to understanding how the brain works a little bit more and if we're able to get to there when we're talking about you know brain disorders um and and, and things like autism could you design technology in a way that you know, takes into account the way that somebody learns and just refactor how you program technology or how you create an interface to kind of facilitate working with their own brain, brain chemistry or brain kind of processes they use. I mean, the other kind of application here is, I think we talked about it last week, but it might've been two weeks ago. But I mean, this is getting closer to what, you know, companies like Neuralink would need to understand about how people are able to learn, how you're interacting with the brain. Um, so although it like the the application is very much indirect, it's still one of these times where it's cool to go back to the body of science that, that like underlies a lot of psychology and a lot of neuroscience because ultimately that provides a basis for how we'll see it in the application world by understanding human decision-making and teaming and like how people function depending on what's going on in their brain. Yeah, I think that's a great link back to Neuralink. Um, and, and you know, if, if we can help, or I guess if a company like Neuralink can help feed that read-write function, the write function uh, within the read-write, to these specific cells where we know this reprogramming is possible, then it might actually help some of this learning behavior, which is really fascinating and, and can really do a lot of good. Um, it can also do a really lot of harm, too, if used in the wrong context. So uh, go check out our episode on Neuralink if you want to talk about, uh, <laughs> if you want to hear us talk about doom and gloom. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I do. This is one of those things that I hope that Neuralink or like Elon Musk's, if he has a foundation, is kind of, you know, trying to feed money into this kind of research. Because, yes, it would make their product better, but like the understanding that that link at the end, like you just talked about of like the dangers of it. I think that's where the most time has to be spent. Like once the mechanisms are understood is like, well, okay, what, what do we do to safeguard, you know, healthy people if we're going to yeah. like implement any changes in the brain? Yeah. I don't want to rehash that conversation. Go listen to our other episode. If you want to, if you want to hear that. Um, all right. Do we have any other closing thoughts on this before we move on? No, this was an excellent pick though. Thanks man. You do some good jobs with picking, too. All right, I just want to thank all of our friends over at Science Daily for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to the original articles in our Slack as we find them. Uh, so join us over there for more discussion. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community. Human Factors Cast strives to bring you the best in Human Factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, 
personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is human factors, etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. All right, and we're back. Yes, our Patreon has it all. Blake, I ran some fun numbers this weekend. You want to hear some fun numbers? Did you? What did you find? I did. So here's some fun stats stats for our Human Factors nerds. Uh, One thing that's not mentioned in this commercial still, we got to fix that, is is Human Factors Minute. We talk about it all the time, um, and I feel like I bump it every week, but that's because we're so excited about it. Uh, I, I have a confession to make, Blake. Uh, oh yeah, we are not providing human factors minutes. Uh, uh oh, are we providing seconds of human uh, factors? We are providing uh, our our longest episode is a minute and fifty seven seconds long, so still within that minute range, right? What? Which one is one hundred fifty seven seconds? No, long? one minute and fifty seven seconds long. Oh so, yeah, so that's what I mean. We're we're looking at almost two minutes long. Uh, it's one of the Chernobyl ones. Um. Oh, that, <laughs> Coming that up would soon. make sense. It does. There's a lot to pack into those. Uh, our shortest episode is 40 seconds long. Yes. Um, our average episode length is one minute and 10 seconds long. Yikes. Should have been Human Factors moment. It should have been Human Factors. Oh, dang it. Missed opportunity. <laughs> I guess we could still do those. You know what? We're going to do those. Human Factors moments. You heard it here first, folks. We... <laughs> We're going to combine a couple of these into Human Factors moments. <laughs> um, but here's here's the fun thing. So so we're we're providing more value than we promised here with Human Factors Minute. And we're actually very excited um, about this. So there's there's a lot uh, going on here. Um, and uh, that's just some fun stats for all you nerds out there. Um, so go check that out if you are so inclined. I think, uh, what did we cover this week? Nah, I'm not gonna get into it. I'd have to look it up. Uh, <laughs> it was fun though. It was. I fun. do have to say, just like as a teaser for the stuff that Nick put together, I I happenstanced read some of the Chernobyl ones. They are so good. You you did a lot of awesome research. It seems putting those together. Thanks, man. Yeah, uh, we got some really fun, exciting ones coming up. Um, like I said, it's been so long since I've done those that. Um, it's it's good to hear that you've been reading up on those as we've been putting more together. Uh, we'll always have a, a supply for you to listen to Absolutely. over there. We got there we got, all these moments. We got plenty coming up. I think we just did what half a year's worth of uh, content in like a, a a couple weeks here. We've been so much content. We've been pushing pretty hard because we got the the holidays coming up and everything, and we want to make sure that we're covered through like the middle of next year before we even. Uh, before we even have to think about it again. Um, but yeah, it's always fun Which to come back such to. such a smart move, yeah. Uh, all right, so let's go ahead and switch gears and get into this next part of the show. It came from... It came from... That's right, it came from Reddit. This is the part of the show where we search all over Reddit to bring you topics the community is talking about. Uh, and this week, we have uh, user Achille... Uh, Akil 1996 in the user experience subreddit uh, they go on to write um, how do you explain human factors to a 10 year old uh, recently had an interview for product design position 
This is one questions that I was asked. Needless to say, I bombed the interview. Blake has thoughts on that. This particular question stood out since I can't uh, since I couldn't find a convincing answer for it. Uh, questions that I was asked. Uh, there's a list of questions here. We'll go through it in a minute. Uh, I would love to hear your answers to these questions and hope this helps to ones who are prepping for an interview. So I, I wanted to pick this one here because um, this the whole elevator speech of what is human factors comes up fairly often. Um, how do you explain human factors in a like one minute pitch to somebody who has no idea what the field is? Um, and then also, how do you explain it easily enough to be understood by somebody who is not as familiar with the subject matter as you? Um, in this case, a 10 year old. And if you can explain it, wasn't there like a, a, a idiom that where if you can explain it to a 10 year old, you truly understand it or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you can explain it to a five year old, yeah, that's you, it. You, you know the concept. Um, and so I, I thought this was a fun question. It's for user experience, but I modified it obviously for human factors. There's a couple questions here. I'm going to go down the, the line. Um, but, but first, I want to talk about what, how do you explain human factors to a 10 year old, Blake? Honestly, Nick, this is something I am horrible at. Not not that I get to explain anything to a 10-year-old very often, but elevator pitches and quick explanations, that's not my bag. I mean, you guys have heard me talk on this podcast long enough if you listened, and I just go on and on. Rambles. Um, I try my best to keep it as simple as possible, even if it's somebody who who I'm talking to has like a really high technical expertise, because it, it just doesn't make sense to me to overcomplicate it. Usually, I'll go one of two ways. If somebody asks me, well, what, do you, what is human factors or what is user experience design? I will either give the stock answer, which is usually I help try to make software and physical products easier for people to use in complex contexts. Um, the other thing that I'll throw out there as well is if it's if it's somebody that I'm talking to that like doesn't have doesn't work in a technical field at all, and they ask me what I do or what UX and what human factors means, I'll ask them to pull out their phone, open up their favorite application, and tell me why they like it. And they'll they'll tend to point out like features and things like that, and I'd use that as a way or an example to say, well, there's a lot of thought that goes behind how you design that kind of technology to make it feel seamless and make it work the way it's supposed to do. And that's where I spend a lot of my time. Uh, so that's, that's the two ways that I do it. They're not great and they're not elevator pitches, but, but Nick, what do you got? What do you use for this? I don't know. I usually resort to something along the lines of I, I so if I'm explaining it to uh, a person, not a 10 year old, uh, 10 year olds are people too, but an adult if i'm explaining it to an adult with no technical expertise in human factors um i i usually boil it down to like a one or two sentence thing where it's like i design software and systems uh based on the understanding of human psychology to optimize user performance um that's kind of how i phrase it in like the shortest way possible if i were to tell a 10 year old something i would i would say you know um uh, I, I study how our minds work so that way we can make uh, tools for them, um, that are, uh, that, that, geez, this is hard so that we can make tools for the people that use them in the ways that they need to use them. Um, basically just very simple, right? Uh, and and something that you said, Blake, kind of uh, resonated with me because I read I read some of the responses to this earlier on the actual Reddit thread here, um, 
the top answer on the on the page is you know how your parents just can't figure out how to use their newfangled iphone or google or facebook uh ux or human factors is about understanding why it's so hard for them and how to make it easier so they can figure it out for themselves there you go that's a really good pitch that's a really great answer um and I, I guess, uh, you know, the thing for me is, like, just don't get super high and mighty about, like, education and all that stuff. It's like we're doing work to help people. Uh, there's no reason why you need to throw around your credentials and I don't know. We're I, just making stuff fun. That's what I, we're doing. Yeah, really. That's that's what we're doing. You know you know the people I'm talking about. Um, so there's there's a couple other questions in here I felt like this was a good one to break down since there were so many questions in here I think we kind of answered the the 10 year old uh, question but I'll go over some of these other ones here how do you keep improving your um, UX UI human factor skills uh, what's your favorite non-digital product um, explain UX or human factors explain it to a 10 year old we, we both just did those uh, Heuristic evaluation versus information architecture. What? Um, yeah, that's weird. Uh, <laughs> why do you think they bombed this? Um, design a, a sign sign up form for an investment company. So this is like a design exercise. These are fun. Wow, it's like a design challenge. Too. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, is UX or human factors just the gratification of something? Uh, just the gratification, or something more than that? Yeah. Um, so see so my comment. Yeah. Let's let's jump into these. So, how do you keep improving your skills? Man, this one's this one's a lot of fun for me because I get I don't know, sometimes I feel like I'm the most fortunate person on the planet. Um so because I get to mentor people for Design Lab, I constantly have to improve my UI or UX skills and a lot of times I'm doing that through content that I'm engaging with that they provide or produce. Um, but also I get super inspired by some of the people I work with and it just makes me a better visual or UX or UI designer. Um, like one of, one of my students is super epic at logos and I've worked a lot with him recently on how to improve my skills. So a lot of times it's just, you know, keeping up with, you know, what new tools are out there, um, like Figma or XD and learning stuff that way, but also just keeping, keeping up with what's going on with people that are actually learning UX or that are more senior that stay on the cutting edge of tools and just learning from them and pushing yourself. Yeah. I think, uh, I've talked about it on the show before, but I, I very much like to watch how other people work. Um, which is why I'm going to tune into your Twitch channel. Uh, but, but understanding how other people's brains work and how they approach a problem, um, will often give me insight as to how I can approach a problem. And, um, I've also mentioned this on the show where there are, you know, um, tangential fields like engineering where there's a lot of problem solving going on, but they use different problem solving methods that they use to kind of uh, approach their situation. And I really like learning things from outside of human factors and applying it to human factors because as much as we'd like to think it's a science, which there is, there's a scientific under, uh, you know, undercurrent and component to it. Don't get me wrong, but the actual application of it is is very much quick and dirty. It's there's no prescriptive thing that we can apply to blanket statement everything. There are tools at our disposal, certainly, but um, understanding that problem solving nature of how to approach a situation is is critical. Uh, and so that's that's kind of where I like to spend my energy is 
um, what are different ways in which I can, uh, or, or methods or techniques that I can use to set myself apart from this, look at it uh, objectively, and try to reapproach the problem from a different vector. You know, that's kind of yeah. where I'm at. Um, all right, uh, favorite non-digital product. Can I actually tack yeah. something tack on, on to that? Tack on to the end of that. So learning a new skill has actually taught me a lot about how to approach design differently. Um, like an example of that is learning to code and being good about refactoring my own code. And it actually led me in my like nine to five job to refactor my design files and my design initial prototypes so that they were easier for me to hand off to other people or they made more sense for me to come back and visit after like a month. So also learning different skills from... Like Nick was talking about, different fields can really just have so much impact on looking at what you do every day with fre- like a fresh set of eyes or a fresh you know process. Yeah. Um, all right. Favorite non-digital product? Oh, definitely my which one? My Schecter guitar. Yeah, for sure, a hundred percent. Very nice. Uh, I am particularly fond of the Xbox. Uh, elite controller um i don't own one but uh the fact that you can customize it just how you like and the offset and we were talking about games earlier i'm bringing it full circle here um the fact that you you have the offset of the uh the joystick i really like that it feels better in my hands because i can hold it at a certain angle and uh you know I, i like other controllers just fine but i really have a fondness for the the offset uh um, thumbstick. They just did it so well the first time. They like really I, I don't understand it. It's so good. I love. I love the feel of their controllers. And you're right. the The elite one is supposed to be awesome because you can customize so much about it. Yeah. Oh, I want. I want to buy one. <laughs> yeah, me too. Now that yeah, now that you've tuned me into those things we talked about earlier. Yeah. Which we might talk about on the show. I'm, I'm saving that for banter at a later date. If if that's if, if you're yeah. wondering if you're listening and wondering what we're talking about, banter at a later date. Uh, back. Okay, we already talked about the next two. Um, heuristic evaluation versus information architecture. This seems like a fairly uh, low-level one to me. It's a low-hanging fruit. Low-hanging fruit here. Um, Tell me about your methods. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I bet you this is. I bet you I know what, why they would ask this question. It's to determine: Do you really know what you're talking about? But even something this, I guess, low-level, it it feels too. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Well, to me, it's a difference between somebody who def who's a UX focused designer versus a UI person or a UI designer or visual designer because it's like you. A lot of times, you get both types of people applying for UX design jobs or product design jobs, and it it's it's fine. But you do have to know a good bit more good bit more about the research methodology when you're applying for a product design job. Yeah, um, and understanding when to use it, why you would use it. I think that the, kind of good stuff. The thing that's confusing to me is that you're comparing apples and oranges. You're comparing a methodology to a concept here. Um, you know, there are yeah. certainly ways to establish an information architecture, but that is a concept. Whereas a heuristic evaluation is a methodology, and and by you know, um, comparing the two, I don't really understand what the goal is between those, other than what you just said is to like evaluate whether or not a candidate has. Uh, ample knowledge of both concepts and methodology and knows these terms um yeah i mean they're they're looking for the answer you just gave yeah 
That's kind of how I feel. Uh, all right. Uh, oh, design exercise. We're not going to get into that. And then um, is UX or human factors just gratification or something more than that? It's a lifestyle, bro. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of doing things. Uh, it's definitely more than just gratification. Yeah. So I, I don't know. There, there's a lot of ways to talk about this. The thing that I find that I'm still working on in my design life is doing the more like delightful type stuff and the gratifying type interactions. I still focus a lot of heavy functionality and utility over right. any of this. Basically, a lot because of the work that I do, right? Um, but I've noticed it in my portfolio. Like, there's not... I have to think a lot harder about, you know, cool little interactions or things that are kind of gamifying the the experience versus, you know, the more human factors, traditional side of things where it's like function and form first, everything else secondary. Right. Um, so I, I definitely think it is a lot more than just gratification. I think that's what it's boiled down to um, today in modern technology. Yeah, I think this is this is a question aimed to get at who's the interaction designer versus who's the UX designer and all that stuff. That's so. a good. That's a really good point. I like that. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, if you have any answers to these questions that you think we missed, let us know. Uh, hit us up on our Slack or social media, or uh, go visit this Reddit post. Um, Blake, you've been doing this like little fun thing at the end of the last couple episodes, uh, called community resources. Uh, I don't know if we want to make it an official segment or not, but we tack it on with the, it came from because it's just, it's, it fits this section. So why don't you go ahead and talk a little bit about your community resource this week? Yeah, I don't know what this is all about, but like LinkedIn has been really kind to me recently. And so actually last one came from one of my students, so I don't know. So this is one of those times where I feel like a lot of people are that are either like in the UX field or maybe in the HF field are starting to get into freelancing or contracting. And I really struggled in what do I do when I'm by myself for my first meeting with a brand new client? I don't know about you guys, but I'm a super anxious person when it comes to working on a big project that's your first one uh, for somebody. And there's a great resource. It's actually, it's a link to a LinkedIn kind of slide deck. I don't know how to get it anywhere else but here, Uh, but it's from a guy named Chris Dew. He is a fantastic branding master and owner of, of Future. It's a design agency or design you know, guru shop um, in, I think, LA. But anyway, so it's just a breakdown of 10 slides of kind of how do you approach your first client meeting? And really the crux of it is you listen and you pay attention to really what their goals and needs are. And you do a lot of kind of prioritizing exactly what needs to be done and how, what the timeline is going to look like. So it's it's just a quick like like I said, ten slide deck that can really give you a nice framework to approach your first client meeting, whether you're a freelancer or you're doing a contracting gig for the first time. I am writing a uh, a nice note to our Slack channel uh, people, and I'm putting it in resources with the link because this is awesome. Uh, so yeah, if you're listening yeah. to the show, uh, go check out our Slack. We have a resources channel for you. We're gonna start posting these in there uh, whenever we find them. And, um, you know, check it out. I will also put it in the, the link below, uh, it, I guess, in the description of this uh, this podcast here for for your convenience. So uh, be sure to check that out. That's awesome. I'm, I'm glad you fi- I'm glad you're finding all this stuff. This it's a really cool resource because, yeah, I'm I'm very anxious and nervous when it comes to uh, first time meetings as well. Um, so good, good, good resource. I'm going to check this out. 
Yes. And if anybody checks it out, let us know in Slack what you think. Is it helpful? Did you get to use it? Would you use it? Are there things that are missing? Let us know. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think we're all good for today. Let's wrap it up. That's it for today. Everyone, let us know what you guys think of the new story this week. Uh, you can join the discussion on our Slack, like I said, or follow us any all over our social channels at H Factors Podcast. You can always send us an email, show at humanfactorscast.com. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, there's a couple ways you can do that. You can always leave us a review on your podcast meeting of choice. That helps get the word out there to others that might be interested in this type of content. Or if you're financially able, you might want to consider supporting us on Patreon. We're always giving back to the people who help support the show financially. It takes a lot to keep the lights on over here. Uh, and of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnsworth for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about resources for their human factors career? You guys can find me everywhere across social media at Don't Panic UX, including Twitch. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.